I, I, I'm glad to be back with you. It's been a long time since I've spoken to the Ripon Society, and I, uh, I want to start off where I left off. Uh, Y'all are important to the Republican Party. Now, the presidential election this year, the most consequential presidential election of anybody in this room's lifetime. Whoever wins is going to get about 75 million votes. It's going to be about what it takes to get elected president of the United States. And uh, to, to get 75 million votes, you got to be a big, broad political party. Now, if everybody has to agree with Haley Clark on everything, being a good Republican, we would never win any elections in most places. <laughs> We were, uh, Robin and I were talking when I came in the door the first time she and I ever met in 1994. I went up to uh, Burlington, Vermont, where they actually allowed me to speak without an interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> I went up to Burlington, Vermont to do a, an event for Jim Jeffords and some of my more conservative friends didn't think too much of that. I told them, this is I told the group. Jim Jefferson, the most liberal Republican in the United States Senate. And he's the most conservative member of the Vermont Congressional Delegation. <laughs> he's as good as we're going to get. And of course, he was replaced by a socialist. Literally, Bernie Sanders, a socialist. So we Republicans need to always remember we're the conservative part of the United States, and the Democrats are the liberal part of the United States. But both parties need to be, if they're going to win, very broad, inclusive parties. My old boss, Ronald Reagan, used to say, remember a fellow agrees with you 80% of the time is your friend and ally, he's not some 20% traitor. And we need to run our political business that way. And particularly this year, because uh, our political business is big business. This is the most consequential presidential election of our lifetime. It's my 12th presidential election. And the differences between the two candidates, with our having nominated the most moderate, the least conservative of the serious candidates for the nomination, we still have the biggest differences between the two candidates of the major parties of any time in my lifetime. And that's saying something when you got Dixon and McGovern, when you got Reagan and Mondale, when you got Dukakis and anybody. <laughs> it's, uh, so this is this high stakes. If I don't if we don't leave here with one thought, I, I want it to be that. This is the most consequential presidential election of our lifetime. You know, Mr. Bat uh, Mr. Secretary, a few people here like you and me old enough to remember Ed so Anybody remember Ed Sullivan? You know, most popular television show in the country. They say one night he had Conrad Hilton on his show back in the 1950s. Conrad Hilton guy had created a new industry, you know, the luxury hotel chain. He was a business icon to, to Bill Gates of his day. And he brought him out on the stage, and immediately Sullivan turns to him and says, Mr. Hilton, you couldn't tell the American people one thing, what you tell them. Conrad Hill never hesitated. He said, put the shower curtain inside the tub. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the guy who was important. 
Well, don't get away from me without anything else. Remember, the most important thing is this is the most consequential presidential election of our And let's face it, the incumbent president in a re-election campaign is always a favorite. And we shouldn't lose track of that. You go back, not quite as far as Rip Vaughn, Wisconsin, but if you go back 116 years to 1896 and come forward, and that more than a century only once has a president won the White House away from the other party and then turned around and lost it back in just four years. Jimmy Carter. That's the only example of that. Every other incumbent president who lost over that 116-year period of time had succeeded a president of his own party, George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, if, you, if you go back to Lyndon Johnson, who dropped out, Harry Truman, who dropped out, Herbert Hoover, William Howard Taft, always the same. See the president on part. So that's the first thing Obama County is that uh, Secondly, is when incumbent presidents lose, the normal harbinger of that is they have a nasty fight for their own party's nomination. A lot of you around 1992, Pat McKinnon, uh, Teddy Kennedy's opposition to Carter in 1980, Gene McCarthy ran Johnson out of the race. Truman dropped out because of troubles in his own party. Well, Obama has none of that. Had no contest at all. Third, uh, while the news media likes to talk about Republicans raising a lot of money, Obama's going to have a gigantic financial advantage. Last time Obama outspent John McCain through their own campaigns in the National Party by more than two to one. 770-something million to 300 million. And that doesn't include more than $400 million that the labor unions didn't contribute to the campaigns but spent directly on Obama's election. McCain got spent about four to one. I see my constant, my uh, election law lawyer over there nodding his head. Uh, and we're going to get outspent again. Because if Labor put up four hundred something million dollars in two thousand eight, what are they going to do after the Boeing case in South Carolina? What are they going to do after card checks effort that they want to continue? What are they going to do after all these NLRB decisions to make it easier to unionize? You know, unionize one grocery store in Yazoo City, Mississippi. Uh, the fact of the matter is, Labor's going to be in a bundle. Obama's going to have enough money to burn wet mule. That's the sacred T.A. is from. The fourth thing in Obama's favor is the Republican primary contest. I mean, let's face it, it wasn't anything pretty about it. It was not particularly helpful. It did not make Romney look better. Uh, and in fact, if you'd asked me, a year ago, six months ago, three months ago. Where would the race start once we had a nominee? Where would we start? Well, I would remember 1980. <coughs> Spring of 1980, Reagan was behind 15 points. So 
some people in the Ripon Society, Jim was saying, draft Gerald Ford. You know, a lot of the moderates who had not supported Gore were saying, you know, he can't win. Ray can't win. I was hoping Romney or whoever won the nominee would not be behind 15 points, but I expected him to be behind. Yet the first Gallup poll after Romney became the, uh, the presumptive nominee, Romney's up to as we've gone through now five weeks of polling, almost all of it in the margin of error. Not every single poll, but almost all of it. And just as many polls with Romney ahead, or even as with Obama ahead. Now, we should never lose sight of the fact that presidential elections are actually 51 little elections. It, it isn't who wins the most vote in the national. So national polling is only somewhat enlightening when you're talking about who's going to get elected president. But we started off nationally way ahead of where a lot of people expected. And I guarantee you way ahead of where the Obama people thought of Ronald to start off. So we get off to a good start. Doesn't take away from the fact that Obama's a favorite. And he's got these other advantages. As you can see, their strategy is becoming apparent, though I think it was always self-evident. The, the Democrats are going to try to make this an election where they disqualify Romney, where they make Romney unacceptable. And you're starting to see TV spots over and over and over, he's not, he's not like us, he doesn't care about people like you, uh, shipping jobs overseas, blah, you can just go down the list, doesn't love his dog, <laughs> married to an equestrian. <laughs> it's, uh, but that's going to be their strategy. Because they don't, they don't have a choice. Obama can't be reelected on the record. He can't run on the record. Which brings you to what our strategy will be. Our strategy will be to try to make this campaign about policy, about the policies Obama's followed and the results that have been achieved. And the American people think that's failure. Uh, virtually any poll will show you more than 60% of Americans think the country is going the wrong direction. Uh, some polls in the high 60s think the country is going the wrong direction. And interestingly, the people who say they strongly believe the country is going the wrong direction is, is up in the 40s. And these are, these are huge numbers or strongly against, strongly opposed, strongly disapprove of the job that Obama's doing. He has a very loyal following. And he's a, and, and candidly, uh, he is he is an incredible polarizer. You know, in, in, the, in the polarization we see in this, in, in, in these polls, it's amazing to me how many people say, I don't think Obama's doing a good job, and I'm going to vote for him. It's amazing if you ask the question, and this has been asked in about three polls in the last six weeks. Do you think Obama's, the biggest issue is the economy and jobs. 
you slice it up different ways, but it always comes out. The economy and job is the most important issue in the country for good reasons, or it ought to be. But if you ask people, do you think Obama's policies have helped the economy improve, have made the economy worse, or made no difference? Virtually every poll, more than 65% say either made the economy worse or have made no difference. Now, the most important issue in the country is to help the economy and you're sitting here with 30% say your policies have helped the economy. That's a hell of a burden to carry in an election. And we've got to make them carry it. We've got to make this election about policy, about Obama's policies and the results of those policies. Because people know the results suck. I'm going to use a high <laughs> political term. <laughs> And they can take the policies one by one, and while it's not top of mind, you don't have to explain it to them. People are concerned about government spending. And then when you talk about how much government spending has gone up, and you give them a little example. The federal government every day takes in a little over $6 billion. And every day the federal government spends about $10 billion. Now, six billion coming in, ten billion going out. If you ran your business that way, you could write a book about it. It would start at chapter eleven. <laughs> <laughs> and people, people get that. They know we can't spend. The country can't spend itself rich any more than you can spend yourself rich. The country can't spend its way out of the deficit. Yet the answer for every problem in the Obama world is bigger government, more government spending. And they want to finance that not only with deficits that are unprecedented in the history of the country. Uh, he hasn't had a deficit yet under one and a quarter trillion dollars a year. He's increased the national debt by about five trillion dollars in three and a half years. That is particularly concerning when you realize in the first 220-something years of the history of the country, all the way up to when Obama became president, the entire national debt's about $10 trillion. He increased it by 50% in three and a half years. Now, people know that's unsustainable, and they know who's going to pay for it. Our children and our grandchildren are going to have to pay that off, or we're going to be having inflation and interest rates like we had when Jimmy Carter was president. Uh, the, the people, people don't need it explained to them with great depth. You don't have to convince them, but it does help to put a few facts in front of them. That uh, by the administration's own admission now, the Obamacare package is going to make the cost of health care go up. Well, I can tell you something about the American people in Obamacare. The 60% the or so who disapprove of it generally feel, I'm going to pay more and I'm going to get less. That's, that's their expectation of government-run health care. I'm going to pay more and I'm going to get less. But it doesn't take a lot to convince them or to remind them how do we expect employers to hire more people 
if they don't know what their obligations or costs are going to be for health care for their employees. How do we say to the employers of the country, <coughs> President Obama wants to put a $1.5 trillion tax increase that will fall almost entirely on employers. Now, how are they going to decide, well, well I should hire some more people. You know, tax is a cost. You know, when the government makes you pay thousands or millions more in taxes, that's money you can't spend on hiring people. You can't spend on wages or benefits or pension plans or technology or expansions. American people don't have a hard time grasping this. That's why the left is going to do everything they can do to change the subject. And I think it behooves us that we want to do everything we can do to put the subject back on policy and results. Because again, it came along with the Let me make a couple of points about timing and then finish talking about Congress and then take questions if that's you, if y'all like. The, the timing now is it's Obama's turn to carpet bomb wrong. With the labor union money, the fact that Obama didn't have to spend any money to win the nomination, he does have a, he's got a bunch of money. And you will see if you live in Virginia and watch the basketball games and the baseball games and everything over the weekend, about every 10 minutes there's an Obama spot attacking Romney. Again, it won't be attacking Romney's policies. It'll be to try to convince people Romney's a bad person. To disqualify him. Some of us have been around a long time. They did that very successfully to Dole in 1996. They was talking about the Republican Congress and attacking Dole and Newt, but the target was Dole, to disqualify Dole, to make Dole unacceptable. Dole never got above 43 in a poll. He ended up getting 42%, but remember Ross Perot also ran and got 9%. So Clinton, Got 49%. Clinton, by the way, is one of only three presidents in American history who got elected and re-elected but never received a majority of the vote. He got 43% in 92 and 49% in 96. And of course, Woodrow Wilson and Grover Cleveland were the others. I say that because they're all Democrats. <laughs> Their goal is to drive Romney down to where Dole was. 42, 43, 44, and try to keep him there. And so what they're going to do, I mean, they're going to spend three, four, five hundred million dollars on a negative TV advertising that carpet bomb and Romney where his grandmama wouldn't recognize him <laughs> or, or vote for him. And just get prepared. We've got to keep changing the subject back to Obama's record. We got to, we want people when they walk into the voting booth and 2012 to think the same thought they thought 1980. I'm a better off than I was And what we see is a very large segment of Obama voters who are dissatisfied. The question is who's going to get them? Now, I mentioned earlier that I didn't think it would be nearly this close at the start. And the reason is Romney is not every Republican's cup of tea. You know, we did, he's the least conservative of the candidates in the conservative party. Yet, the party rallied around him immediately. 
much quicker than I feared, which is just a reminder that Obama is the great uniter of Republicans and conservatives. <laughs> and, you know, Romney may not be your cup of tea, but it, anybody's better than Obama. Uh, and Romney is, I think, going to show people uh, a side of him that is compelling in terms of the right kind of policies versus the wrong kind of policies. But he starts off even. But just as Obama's a unifier of Republicans, he has got a great loyalty among many Democrats. Large numbers say they disapprove the job he's doing, they think the country's going in the wrong direction, and they're going to vote for Obama. That's the target here in this race. Virtually everybody who is in play voted for Obama. Obama got about 53% of the vote last time. And somewhere in that 53%, there's about 4 or 5% that we got to win and who are available to us not because they dislike Romney, I mean because they dislike Obama. They want Obama to succeed. I mean, one of the advantages of being the first African-American president, people want you to succeed. They want this to be successful. Yet, they don't think he's doing a good job. And where do they end up at the end of the day? We're not going to make them dislike Barack Obama and have the, the, the views of it that many of us have. That's not going to happen. What we've got to convince them of that the bad job that he's doing, uh, that he, he has no right to blame somebody else, which of course is always the Obama first step, is somebody else's fault. Bush did it, the oil companies did it, the pharmaceutical companies did it, the Europeans did it. Just, you know, it's always somebody else's fault. They got to first decide in somebody else's fault. And then they got to decide Romney would do better. That they need another, another choice and another chance. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But if Romney is disqualified, it'll happen this summer. If it doesn't happen this summer, they will have failed to achieve that. Because this is, the, this is when they get to run relatively in the open at very high levels of spending when we, that we can't match. Once you get September and October, I think the race changes that if they haven't disqualified Romney, then the person in danger collapses Obama. Um, is this 1980 again? Obviously, I hope so. Uh, but uh, I, I think he is the one that has all the downside from then on. Now, if he doesn't, then this race will look like 1964. I'm sorry, look like 1960, look like 1968, look like 2000. Just a straight up and down, close as it can get race. And that may end up happening. If Romney gets through the summer and Obama gets through October, then we may have a race that is a 50-50 race as you ever saw. And it really will turn around on a handful of states. Uh, we'll see if that happens. How does it affect the uh, Congress? I, one admonition I just want to share with all of you. Too many of my business friends think, well, if Obama wins, we, at least we got the House. We can keep him from doing anything terrible. If they disqualify Romney and he ends up getting in the mid-40s, we'll lose the House. 
there's no, no, uh, I, I, I remember when John said that and some of his members got unhappy about it. But it's just the truth. If we do badly enough to stop the ticket, we'll lose the house. We got 87 freshmen. Uh, I think it's the current number. 89 freshmen makes it even better. We got 89 <laughs> freshmen, and the, the most vulnerable election of your career is your first re-election. 61 of our members run in districts that Obama carried last time. 16 of them in districts that care about more than 10 points last time. Freshmen can't, can't survive a 10-point, 12-point, 15-point loss at the top of the ticket. They just, they just can't. So that's a, don't, don't think we got the house locked up. I do think in a 50-50 race, we'd probably keep the house. Uh, maybe with a slight reduction in the, in the majority, but not much. The Senate, we all thought a year ago, the Senate was pretty doable, and it is still doable. 24 Democrat seats and 10 Republicans, but it didn't turn out to be as easy as we thought. Olympia's resignation, uh, retirement, cost us a seat. I mean, we're going to try as hard as we can try, but the likelihood of keeping Maine is, is not good. Scott Brown, we know, has got a tough race. The Democrats will go after Heller, though I don't think they'll get him. But my point is, I'm sorry, I've got to turn off the phone. <laughs> or any of you English, that's Scott the Brave. <laughs> <laughs> Like I say, I don't think we're going to have real risk with Heller, but we have to be careful. But instead of picking up four, three if we win the White House, we probably have to actually win five seats because we're going to lose at least one. And some of these races haven't turned out to be as easy as they look like. Uh, Nebraska, John, uh, Bob Kerry getting in makes it tougher. New Hampshire, I'm sorry, not New Hampshire, uh, North Dakota. North Dakota, the Democrats nominated their strongest candidate by far. Uh, you just, Montana's a, a real horse race. New Mexico's a real horse race. Not that we thought either one of those were going to be easy. We should win Missouri, but that, that's not shooting fish in a barrel. Virginia, uh, this is a hugely close race. Florida's doable, but not, not easy by any... Uh, stretch of the imagination. Ohio, we've got a serious candidate, but we're behind and got some catching up to do. Uh, you just, if Tommy Thompson is the nominee in Wisconsin, I will predict he will win Wisconsin. If Tommy's the nominee, no guarantee that he's going to be the nominee. Uh, I do think we will keep Indiana. If, if Luger had won the nomination, it would be a 100% chance. I think it's still likely that we'll that we'll keep Indiana. So um, I, I, I may have missed a state or two as we went through. You can ask about it if you want to, but it's no given that we're going to win the Senate. And again, if the Democrats succeed in disqualifying Romney in the summer, it gets much harder to win the Senate. So all of this is to go back and say, this is the most consequential presidential election of our lifetime. It probably will determine who wins the House and Senate, as well as the direction of the country, which will be 
almost 180 degrees different, depending on who, who you elect. And that difference is almost all about the proper size and role and cost of the government in our lives and in the economy. And we all have a huge stake in that. Thank you all for letting me. Yes, sir. Governor, could you tell us your thoughts about the vice presidential uh, uh, shortlist and uh, who, who you might suggest? Uh, well, the question is, what's the, my thoughts on the vice presidential? First of all, people should not be thinking about who right now. They should be thinking about what do we want to accomplish with, with the selection. Yeah. The first rule of picking a vice president is the Hippocratic rule of do no harm. You know, some of us around were around in 1972 when, when uh, McGovern picked Tom uh, Eagle. yeah, Eagleton and didn't work out so good. Uh, do no harm. Uh, the second rule is to do what President Kennedy did in 1960 when he picked Lyndon Johnson. Get you somebody who almost guarantees you carry a big critical state that you probably wouldn't carry without. I mean, if, if, uh, if you believe or Mitt believes uh, that uh, Governor Ridge would guarantee his carry in Pennsylvania, if he believes that uh, Senator, uh, Senator, my phone's trying to ring again. Senator, if, if he believes that Rob Portman would give him Ohio, does he believe Scott Walker would give him Wisconsin? Does he need McDonald to carry Virginia? Does he need Rubio to carry Florida? I don't know, but that's what they got to be deciding. Is there somebody that gives you a big state you wouldn't otherwise carry? I don't know that there necessarily is. Third is unite the party. I mean, President Reagan picked George Bush to unite the party in 1980 because he didn't want the, the, the middle to go the way of the Gold War campaign. And the last thing is you can pick somebody and reshuffle the deck, uh, throw the bomb. But that almost never works, and I think in this case it's not necessary because we start off in a dead heat. We don't need to reshuffle the deck. We need to keep it like it is. So I suspect you'll get one or two, and the question is, is there anybody who actually can perform number two? Uh, give us Ohio. Ohio Pennsylvania are the two states that would be the most desirable. I would venture to say to you, if either candidate carries both Ohio and Pennsylvania, he'd be president. Just because of the way the rest of the states are likely to break out. But um, thus far, it seems that the, the efforts to try to disqualify Romney have not met with great success. It's early. but. What's your sense of what they're going to go after and whether or not they will be effective? Well, I mean, the risk is that they'll be effective. I'm like you. I think they have flopped around, and, it, and it, it, that connotes that they're having a hard time getting a message that's resonating. I mean, I can tell you, these guys are polling and focus grouping everything down to, the, you know, what color cufflink somebody's got on. And they are really, really spending a bunch of money on research. And apparently they're not satisfied with the results they've been getting. They've been testing messages for six months since we were back in January or 
maybe December in Arizona. Uh, so that's encouraging for us. This spot that they're running now, that's uh, the Boston Globe says that the deficit went up when Bitt was governor and blah, 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 blah. You know, I think it's probably the best spot they've run yet. Though it's got a lot in it, I think it's pretty easily refutable. You know, I think they're planning on just doing it by weight spending so much money that even if we try to refute stuff that not enough people see the refutation. Uh, it's a, but no, there's a risk. There's absolutely a risk. And, uh, and we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be uh, overconfident at all just because we start off better than we thought we would. Yes. Governor, well, what do you think the impact of uh, Supreme Court decisions are going to be? Well, you know, I, as I say, I'm, I'm a lawyer, and i got better sense to try to predict what a court's going to do uh, based on questions that they ask and comments that they ask. You know, that, that's kind of a fool's journey. If they throw out the individual mandate. I should say to you, Mississippi's a plaintiff in the case. So uh, I've, I've been involved in it since the beginning. If they throw out the individual mandate, but do not throw out the whole law, if they separate it and throw it out, you got one set of circumstances. If they throw out the whole law based on the individual mandate being constitutional, totally different deal. Because the burden is on the Republicans to try to throw out the rest of it if they only do that. The burden for both sides if they uh, uh, do it a different way is what are we going to replace it with? I, I thought not surprising uh, based on what we've seen in my state, there was a story in the paper about United Health Group saying that they were going to keep the up to 26 whether they threw out the law or not. And they were going to do something else. Pre-existing well, conditions. Yeah, in, in I don't think it was pre-existing conditions, but at any rate, in Mississippi, Blue Cross Blue Shield had already, before Obamacare ever passed, started allowing parents to keep their kids on 26. You know, and here's a, the dirty little secret: because they make money. Because <laughs> otherwise, these kids won't have any health insurance, and and so it's it's good. It's good business, and I'm sure United Health Group made the same decision. The reason I don't think that, at least the story that I read didn't talk about uh, pre-existing conditions because one of the most underreported things in the country, before Obamacare, 35 states already had high risk pools for people who had pre-existing conditions. In Mississippi, we had about 3,600 people who bought their health insurance through the pre-existing high-risk pool over, on average, since 1995, we, we've had it for 17 years, about 3,600. They put in the federal program, and today, about 110 people buy their health insurance through the federal program, even though it's cheaper. And my point is, we didn't need that. They could have told all the other states, if you don't set one up, then we're going to do something. <coughs> so 
but the, the, the burden is going to is not going to be do nothing. The burden is going to be do you strip out the remaining law and replace it with something simpler, or the left will say don't strip out the remaining law and let's add something to the remaining law. Until we see the court suit, you don't know which which direction you're going to have to jump. I'm not smart enough to tell you who that helps and hurts politically. I mean, there. It's very unpopular. You can make a case. Obama is helped if he gets thrown out. It takes a ward off the table. You know that he's got one less thing he has to defend. Thank you. Yep. Why is Bill Clinton saying the things he's saying? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's Bill Clinton. <laughs> you know, I used to say, you know, President Clinton can charm the skin off a snake. I mean, he, he's the first. I mean, he sells Fords to Chevrolet dealers. <laughs> I, I remember we used to say he's the first president of American history that had the ability to cry out of just one eye. <laughs> <laughs> and I think President Obama's learning about that ability. <laughs> Characterize the significance of the Tea Party movement going into November, and then tell us what your overall assessment is of their impact on the Republican Party. Uh, first of all, there is a strain of Perotism in it. Some of it are, are some of the same people. Uh, and, and uh, it, but it's very differently organized. The Perot organization actually attempted to have a national organization with a modicum of success. There is no attempt at the Tea Party movement. There got to be 25 Tea Party groups in Mississippi, and there's just and there's no there is no Tea Party per se. There are a bunch of little deals and a bunch of and some pretty good sized deals. They have in common generally these are middle aged and older. They don't tend to be very young. There are some young people, but generally tend to be middle-aged and older. People who got scared enough to get up off the sofa and try to do something about it. Obama scared them, scared them to death. Over the size of government, spending, deficit, debts, taxes, Obamacare, uh, energy policy. Uh, and in 2010, they generally helped us. Now, we lost a Senate seat in Delaware, just pure and simple, went from a dead moral lock cinch with Mike Castle to getting demolished because Mike would have voted right 80% of the time, and we got some left-wing goofball over there that votes right about 1% of the time, Michelle, if, uh, if I'm not far off. Uh, we probably lost a seat in Colorado. Uh, I don't think we lost a seat in Nevada over this, but clearly uh, the other uh, Sue, uh, uh, yeah, the former state party chairman, former state senator, would have been a better, better candidate against Harry. That's why. That's why he spent a hundred thousand dollars, maybe millions of dollars, trying to defeat her in the primary. Now, still, I would say it's a net plus. Energy, enthusiasm, volunteers have paid off in a lot of places, helped us, 
helped us in 10 when we picked up, uh, we went from one out of four congressional seats to three out of four. In the primaries, uh, I thought at times they got people off message. Uh, I thought Romney at one time tried to compete for being the most conservative candidate. And there was a perception that they wanted the most conservative candidate. I'm not sure that was ever right, but that was a, there was some uh, message, I think some messages got, got bent a little bit, trying to appeal to the Tea Party people. The greatest danger is that they form a third party. I think we're probably beyond that. But that was the great, great risk. The other thing, which I don't consider the same kind of risk, but I think hugely important, we have to spend a lot of energy and time, we mean the regular Republican Party. I don't care if you're a Riponite or if you're a Reaganite or if you're a right-wing kook Rockefeller Republican, all of whom I love. <laughs> we have got to spend time bringing these people in under the tent, letting them have a chance to participate, letting them have a chance to run, be on the county committee, be precinct committee man, be on the fans committee, be president of the Women's Federation. And in the process, we got to let them learn that purity in politics is the enemy of victory. Uh, ain't the one perfect person ever walked on this earth, and he ain't running this year. <laughs> but when we're out there looking for perfection, and that's one of their weaknesses, and you see it in some of the house guys, they want to be pure. They want to be for what's perfect. That's not an option in the real world because you have to get enough votes to win and not everybody is going to agree on what's even perfect. So we need to teach them. The, the mathematics of politics is about addition and multiplication. It's not about division and subtraction. So you got to get purity out of your mind. And uh, I mentioned early in my remarks what Reagan used to say. And I'll close with this little story. Reagan used to say, fellow agrees with you 80% of the time, your friend and ally, and not a 20% traitor. So in 1986, Specter was up for re-election. And Ed Rollins, who brought me to the White House, Rollins didn't want Reagan to help Specter. And he had said something to Specter to that effect, which kind of Reagan got unhappy about because he didn't authorize it. And frankly, it didn't feel that way. So we had a little meeting of the political people. And Reagan says, well, Ed, uh, how much does Specter support me? Rollins just smiled and said, he supports you the least of any Republican in the conference, 59% of the time. President nodded, so Ed, now how much does that Democrat congressman running against him support me? Well, Rollins got to turn red face and he said, well, 17%. <laughs> Reagan said, you know, Ed, this kind of reminds me of the bear story. Bear story? Yeah, these, these two guys were backpacking through the mountains one time. They were going down this narrow path. Out in the woods jumps this gigantic grizzly bear, 12 feet tall, drooling, nasty, obviously spotted his lunch. 
And one of them calmly sat down and started putting on his running shoes. Took him out of the backpack. The other looked at him and said, Fool, what are you doing? You can't outrun that bear. And the other smiled and said, Pop, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just got to outrun you. <laughs> and that's the way we need to think about politics. Somebody who is far, far better than the Democrat has got to be our choice, even if he ain't perfect. And our friends at the Club for Growth, and our friends at Freedom Works, and friends at other places, got to learn that. Because they're doing us a hell of a lot bigger disservice than the Tea Party. Because they're putting money behind people to be good Republicans who would vote right 80, 90% of the time. So, thank you for having me, Jim. Thank you.